This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley Rubric to the third movie of the Indiana Jones franchise, The Last Crusade, starring Harrison Ford, Sean Connery, Denholm Elliott, and John Reese davies However, quickly before we get to the show... Next week, we are covering one of the greatest film noirs of all time that you should recognize from my closing line this season, Sunset Boulevard, starring Gloria Swanson and William Holden. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast.com at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master lists of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, Dad, we are back to finish off our Indiana Jones coverage, as I personally have no desire to visit Kingdom of the Crystal Skull anytime soon, but I think this might be your favorite Indiana Jones film, yes? Yes, it is. It is by far simply because I love the interplay because, uh, between uh, Harrison Ford and Sir Sean Connery. It's the one time that uh, in a film that Harrison Ford has somebody that has the the visual and cinematic equal to himself in a film. Uh, both from probably an appeal standpoint as well as just simply acting chops. I would probably guess that you're right. This might be one of the best pairings from a casting standpoint that I could think of. I don't know who else at that point in time in 1989 you could have gotten to pair directly with Harrison Ford that would have been as good a match as Sean Connery. I, I can't think of any. I mean, there are a few that I would put on par, but even then, I, I'm i not sure. In, in 1989, no. Maybe a little later if you were to do it more recent. I th- can think that uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins would have played the part well as well. Yeah, he would probably have been a little too young, given that he was, I think, in his mid-40s, maybe late 40s, early 50s, when he did Silence. And this was that was a few years after this. So I don't think he would have been quite the same. And he has taken over a lot of those paternal characters in some recent films that I guess I could agree from that standpoint. But given our relationship to Sean Connery... I also don't think that Anthony Hopkins was quite the same level of sex appeal as Sean Connery was, even the bald Sean Connery. There's a certain masculinity about Sean Connery. It's a certain uh, same masculinity that comes out of Harrison Ford. I mean, the fact that, you know, he was a stagehand at times and built sets and did carpentry. 
I mean, it just all plays into the image that Harrison Ford has, which is this guy is really a very macho, to use a term from the uh, 80s and 90s, a macho man himself. Just very, the, the level of testosterone in the film was high. And even at that point, as Sean Connery is in his late 60s, early 70s, he matched it. My seventh grade teacher would be very upset that Macho Man didn't make its way back into the 70s where it was originally coined by the village people. Okay. Yeah, I guess. So then what is your relationship to this movie? Well, <laughs> this this movie came out in 1989, which was my senior year of law school. And at the time I was getting married and everything and... I had, to say the least, no money, no time, and no energy. So I believe I did not see this at the theater. I'm positive I did not see it at the theater. I think I ended up watching it a year or two later on either HBO or on a, on a uh, VHS tape at the time because of that, uh, the reality of my economic situation. I can't honestly say that I remember the first time watching it. It's like all the Indiana Jones movies, save for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I did actually see at the theater because that came out when I was a junior in high school. But the rest of them, I just at some point watched the films and it was probably on cable, to be honest. And I enjoyed them. So they've just been a part of my life. I, I can't say it was like a seminal moment in my film watching history. It's just one of those films that has always been a part of my movie going. Well, and you saw the, uh, is it Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Yes. And came back and so deadpanned it. I have never seen it. I've never watched it, never tried to watch it because... You, you were so negative, and the critics just railed on it. Between the two, the critics in general and you, I'm like, I don't even want to spend an hour and a half, two hours watching something that I know I'm going to hate. I thought there were elements to it that were okay. I think most people's backlash had to do with the fact that most of the movie was done in CGI when all of the three original films were practical. And as far as stunts and effects, and I, I know that James Mangold is really going all out on the practical effects and stunts for this iteration that's coming up since Spielberg's no longer doing them. But my biggest thing where I thought I just, I was out on that movie was when we had a spaceship literally take off from an Incan temple. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. When you cross Indiana Jones and the X-Files, I'm just, no, no. I mean, the first three movies are defined by old mythical religious stuff, and this is defined by a long-lost alien technology. <laughs> it, it just, it, it didn't appeal to me that we needed to combine those two things. So then, in relation... Since we've done all three movies back-to-back, -back, I think we should talk about them in their greater context. I think by far Raiders is the best and greatest of all three. It's really not hard to say that. 
I think that most people believe Kingdom of the Crystal Skull doesn't even exist in their just Indiana Jones structure. We just ignore it, like some Star Wars fans do of certain movies in that franchise. Also a Lucasfilm property at one point. So it comes to bear, but I'll ask this question in relation to how we're more constructing this, because I think Raiders is just kind of its own thing and probably exists on our list by itself, especially in such a wide margin. But in talking about Last Crusade, you kind of have to bring up a little bit with Temple of Doom and make some compare and some contrast as well. Is Last Crusade or is Temple of Doom more responsible with giving Indiana Jones credibility as a franchise beyond just Raiders of the Lost Ark? Last Crusade. The element of it, the humor of it, the lightheartedness. And I I mean, I'm not going to hide anything here, but one of my favorite scenes, and ultimately I think what's going to be my favorite scene, is this the the, uh, scene where... Indiana Jones and his dad are tied up in the castle and the fire gets started and the whole thing. It, it's it's comical. There's a certain element of comedy to it, despite the element of suspense and what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. That so epitomizes the modern day evaluation and understanding of what Indiana Jones is and so much mirrors uh, the um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. These two match each other as far as more tone and level. There's a certain level of humor associated with them. We're talking about the third part of this being rather dark and, and ominous. See, now having watched all three of these over the last three weeks... I say they're probably about even. Yes, I agree with all of your points as far as the tone, the structure, even the item they're going after, Ark of the Covenant, based on a Western religious artifact that I guess the Western canon is going to more readily and easily understand due to their affiliation with Christianity just generally, either through Catholicism or, I guess, Lutheranism, if you will. Protestantism, I guess it would probably be the technical term for it. But I think from a pacing standpoint, an action standpoint, Temple of Doom actually makes uh, or is closer on that front to Raiders than anything in Last Crusade. The action sequences in here are actually kind of minimalized for me. They're not like the big chase sequences that you've had in some of the other ones. Yes, there is the motorcycle chase and then trying to get away on the plane. But those are smaller set pieces by comparison to like, I want to say a 10 minute truck ride or whatever it was that he's basically trying to reclaim the arc. Or you want to talk about the mine car chase. I, I just thought this one was a little bit slower. And so I think both of them have different parts of the mantle that they do, but neither, because neither does all of those things collectively they're not as good as the original. I don't know. I I, I I understand that, you know, when you're looking at a standard as established by the original and everything else can somewhat pales in comparison, you have to start looking at certain elements and where things are. And again, I draw into the humor aspect. There's a certain 
a frivolity of films one and three that does not exist in two. Moreover, just the sheer fact that we have villains who are Nazis. I mean, how much more of a villain can you be other than being a Nazi? I mean, it makes it so easy to hate. Naturally, especially for an American audience, but I don't know. Having a guy pull a beating heart out of a chest, that's pretty close. Let's give some more context to the audience on this then. Do you have your plot summary ready? I do. In 1938, Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, learns from Walter Donovan, Julian Glover, that his father, Henry Jones Sr., Sir Sean Connery, was searching for the Holy Grail using an incomplete inscription from a stone tablet as a guide, and has since vanished. Jones receives Henry's Grail diary from Venice and heads there with Marcus Brody, Denholm Elliott where they meet Henry's Austrian colleague, Dr. Elsa Schneider, Allison Duty. They soon undertake the quest to solve the clues and locate the grail as a means to find Henry. After searching through libraries, a Nazi-controlled castle, and even Berlin, they are led to the canyon of the Crescent Moon, where the grail is kept. Will Indiana find the grail, or will he choose poorly? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, River Phoenix as a younger Indiana Jones, Sean Connery as Henry Jones Sr., Denholm Elliott as Marcus Brody, Allison Duty as Elsa Schneider, John Reese davies as Sala, Julian Glover as Walter Donovan, Kavork Malikian portraying Kazim, Michael Byrne portrays Colonel Ernst Vogel. Recognition for this movie. The film was released in the United States and Canada on Wednesday, May 24th, 1989, in 2,327 theaters, earning a record 37,031,573 over the four-day Memorial weekend. Its Saturday gross of $11,181,429 was the first time a film had made over $10 million in one day. It broke the record for the best seven-day performance with a gross of 50. $2 million, beating the $45.7 million grossed by Temple of Doom in 1984 on 1,687 screens. It added another record with $77 million after 12 days and earned $100 million in a record 19 days. The film eventually grossed $197,171,806 in the United States and Canada and $277 million internationally for a worldwide total of $474,171,806. Nominated for Best Original Score and Best Sound, it won for Best Sound Editing. This was also the last of the Indiana Jones movies until 2008's Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Did you know? Steven Spielberg is on record as saying he made this movie for two reasons. One, to fulfill a three-movie obligation he had made with George Lucas and... Two, to atone for the criticism that he had received for the previous installment, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Did you know? Due to his commitment to this movie, Steven Spielberg had to drop out of directing 1988's Big and also 1988's Rain Man. Did you know? Harrison Ford nominated River Phoenix to play him as a teenager, having worked with him before on his favorite of his many movies, The Mosquito Coast, 1986. 
When describing how he prepared for playing the role, Phoenix explained that he didn't really base his portrayal on the Indiana Jones character, but on Harrison Ford. So he observed Ford out of character before acting his part. Did you know? Most of the uniforms worn by the Nazis in the Berlin book-burning scene are authentic World War II uniforms and not replicas. A cache of old uniforms was found in Germany and obtained by costume designer Anthony Powell to be used in this movie. Did you know? Sir Sean Connery and Harrison Ford wore no trousers during the shooting of the entire Zeppelin sequence. It was filmed in a very hot studio and Connery didn't want to sweat too much. (laughs) Did you know? The temple at the end of the movie exists, but not in Alexandretta. It is in Petra, Jordan. However, there is no inside to it. The doorway seen on screen is huge. Eight or nine people shoulder to shoulder can easily walk through it. It leads to a huge empty square room carved from the top down over two stories high. Similarly, they wouldn't be able to get lost down the valley as it stretches for about a mile or so and there is no other route but out. Steven Spielberg and his crew were guests at the royal palace of King Hussein and Queen Noor during the shooting in Jordan, and Spielberg was even brought to the temple by Queen Noor and her children. All right, Dad, so what is the elevator pitch for this movie? Indiana Jones, the swashbuckling hero, chases the oldest known quest. I went in a much different direction. Our most famous adventure seeker needs to find the source of his father's long-lost obsession with the hope that his father may admit his love for him. <laughs> oh, oh, is that some sort of uh, closet slap? It, whatever would you mean? <sighs> At the end of this, and I think it's exactly why you like this movie. It's a father-son movie. I guess. The father's obsession, his long obsession that has eaten up his entire life, his entire pursuit, and the reason why he's estranged from his son. And I think this is probably the most relationally built of the three by far. This is the one that delves into so many other interpersonal relationships than Raiders, where it seems like the only pursuit is just for the arc. There's almost an obsession over it as like this one. And I think there is a definite way that the movie kind of mirrors obsessions. The first entire sequence, the circus train and everything else that goes on, is for the cross of Coronado. And then Indy, years later, we flash forward and he, uh, I guess it's the Panama hat man. They never really give him a name in the credits, I guess. But he has the cross of Coronado and Indy finally gets a hold of it and is able to track it down. But that's been his obsession since he was probably, I think that uh, even though River Phoenix was probably like 20 at that point, he's trying to play, since it's a Boy Scout, somebody that's like 12. 13. 13, fine. So by that standpoint, Indy finally tracks down his obsession. Then he helps his father in a similar situation that he is finding his father's long-lost obsession with a particular thing. You're seeing a mirroring effect. Okay, I'm glad you gave the uh, elevator pitch. We talked about my elevator pitch, and then we went on well beyond that. (laughs) Yes, okay. The minute you insert another question, it's no longer the elevator pitch. Okay. Best performer for you? 
Harrison Ford. It was really? close. I, I'm going to go. I, I, I can't. I'm going to combine uh, best performance and best secondary performance between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery because it was very difficult. I went with Harrison Ford simply because he does a lot more of the nuance than or than Sean Connery does. Although Sean Connery is such is so precious at times of this, you just want to go. Oh, you're just so good. You know why couldn't you have done more? By that point, I think he'd so innately created the character he was no longer acting. I think Indiana Jones is probably the closest version we have of Harrison Ford to Harrison Ford. And at that point, it's just so interwoven that it's Harrison Ford acting like Indiana Jones instead of Harrison Ford trying to be Indiana Jones because he is Indiana Jones. So I say that about half of Hollywood. I, I know it's degrees here. I just, I guess I didn't see the nuances of his performance in the same way that I did in either of the previous films. I thought for sure, given comments you made in last week's episode, that you were going to go Sean Connery, hook, line, and sinker. I almost did, and I'm like, I went back and forth, and I was struggling. Well, I didn't struggle. Sean Connery was my best performer. I thought that for somebody to come into a series on the third movie, and create a defining character in the way that he did was <laughs> impressive. Not only did he not get acted off the screen, he wasn't a periphery character. He was an equal. And that's not something you get unless you have the presence, the charisma, the acting chops, if you will, of a Sean Connery, especially at this point. Because this is about the same point that he's making Untouchables, that he's making Hunt for Red October. This is late stage Sean Connery post Bond, where he kind of has the Connery sense. Yes. So I, I thought clearly, by level of degree of difficulty, he was my best performer. <sighs> I agree with everything. All right, and I. <laughs> so he's your best secondary. Fine. I'll, we'll move to mine. Again, I gave this one based on a level of degree of difficulty. Somebody who you simultaneously hated and were empathetic toward, that you felt enough connection early on, that you really felt the stinging betrayal when you find out she's a Nazi. I went with Allison Duty. I thought to create a compelling character that not only is a Nazi, but a hot blonde was compelling to me. All right, well... I think this was actually her last film. I think she ended up getting married and having a family and basically bowing out of Hollywood after this. But um, Well, for a last film, it's not bad. I think she's done a few bit parts here and there, but I think this is the last time she did a major film. So I understand your point, but okay. I will have to say her uh, portrayal in the... Uh, last scene where it's oh i can just reach it it was just kind of almost like she gave the the appearance of almost being maniacal having lost reality there's a look in her eye i think that's in quite intentional that she become gripped by the obsession of the grail 
And I think that's the whole point is the real learning moment in that is when Henry says and calls him instead of junior recognizes him by Indiana and says, just let it go. It's not that important. Yeah. That's the emotional peak of the movie. Although to be fair, she'd already like fell fallen into the crevice by that point. Yes. Most charismatic, I went with the obvious. I just went Harrison Ford because, I mean, it's hard not to go with Harrison Ford. I mean, he's still, even though I thought by far he looked aged by comparison to Temple of Doom and Raiders, where he was like peak level of Harrison Ford, he started to really look like an older guy in this one. Then um, I still, there, there's just something about him as Indiana Jones that, bleeds through charismatic oh no 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 it's sean connery simply because this is the time where he had his renaissance and he was voted the most sexiest man alive you know like he's 62 or something like that at the time and he's the sexiest man alive. the idea that this middle-aged guy who's balding Yes, is now the sexiest man alive. Just let me believe, like, yes, there's hope for us all. What are you talking about? You've bragged for years of your luscious mane, as you've put it. Yes, I know. And I do have that. So, unlike others who are part of this podcast. Thanks for outing me. I'm, I'm feeling the closeness right now. All right, best scenes. I had nominated... Circus Train Chase, Venice Library, Escaping the Castle, The Blimp Chase, The Trials, which is the Word of God, Breath of God, and um, I don't know, was it Path of God is the third one? And then You Chose. Did I miss any that you thought I should have nominated? Did you, or was part of that include the tying up in the fire and the castle itself well i said escaping the castle i kind of just do that loosely because that that's a fairly long scene from the fire and the dad dad what what you know and and that exchange there to uh them in the fireplace with the turnstile and then uh him sitting in the chair i mean that's all part of it yes i would even put the motorcycle chase included in escaping the castle so i'll loosely include it yeah Okay, so no, I think you covered everything. Okay, what would you say is the best scene then? Boy, I think the uh, and the reason I ask specifically about the castle and the fire and all that, to me that's the best scene, that's the most, that's my favorite scene because it shows the interplay, the conflict of father-son and them trying to figure out how to work together in a certain context. For me, the one that probably works the best is the trials. It, it's probably the peak edge of your seat moment from the movie because you're not sure how Indy's going to do it. And I think they do a very good job of making something very simple yet subtle in getting through all of the booby traps. Uh, they've set it up for a while. They know what's going on. And really the way that you're introduced, you have the added stakes of Henry being shot. I think that's a weightier scene, 
And I'd like how that all works out, even though I would add that maybe the actual choosing of the grail at the end would be part of that. Uh-huh. It just, I, I want to kind of leave that to its own thing because I want to separate out the breath of God, the penitent man sort of thing. And then the pathway or walking on Yahweh eventually to the final thing being the, the bridge. Cause I think that might be one of the most unique scenes in a movie because the way they set that up, you think for sure he's going to plunge to his death. And then they do such a great job of showing you the actual bridge that's there and all the other things that they did to kind of create that. I thought that was a great use of movie making to make the visual more important than anything else that was going on dialogue wise. Okay. Favorite scene uh, was also the trials for me. So I won't spend a ton of time on it. Uh, What was your favorite? As I indicated, it was the scene in the castle with the fire. Most indelible for me, though, is, and I think this is the thing that's probably been the most quoted, specifically, there's an allusion in an episode of How I Met Your Mother that I think came around for you, and that's where you've really locked it in and it's an indelible moment for you in the last season of How I Met Your Mother. You chose poorly. (laughs) Yes, I think it if is. there's one defining moment, it's yes. probably that. Yes, that is it. It's the one that probably pops up the most often in other pop culture moments. All right, uh, let's take a quick break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, before we get to Best Funniest Lines, do we have anyone to remember this week? Nicholas Devatsis. He was the founder of the A&E Networks. While it's not necessarily film, there's several aspects of that network which are film quality and film worthy. And, you know, it it just, the network itself has brought me a lot of entertainment. So I put him on the list simply because there's a lot of shows that are on A&E that uh, have been very uh, impactful to me. And uh, I thought he should be remembered accordingly. Yeah, I'm not familiar with what's even on their network at this point anymore. I can't honestly name anything that I've ever watched off of A&E. Well, there's a lot of historical... The History Channel is on there, the Military Channel, lots of different... Those all part of the A&E group? Yes. Well, okay, then yes, I have watched a lot of stuff over there over the years then. I just don't know if I've watched A&E itself. Well, Either way, uh, uh, inside the actor's studio. That's Bravo. Oh, is it? I thought that was on A and E. Oh, that's Bravo. Okay, sorry, my bad. To be fair, I know it only for the last, like, basically since I think about two thousand and five. So it could have started off in a different place. I'm not sure. Uh, I'll leave the room open for that. Maybe uh, when it originally kind of like started in the nineties, it was big that it might have been in a different place. But I, I do know by the end of it, before James Lipton got sick, that it was on Bravo. Okay. Anyway, a moment of silence for Mr. Devotz's. Thank you. All right, let's go to best lines, funniest lines. What do you got down? 
I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. Indiana Jones. Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're looking for, Dr. Tyree's philosophy class is right down the hall. Indiana. Indiana. Let it go. Dr. Henry Jones. I didn't know you can fly a plane. Indiana. Fly? Yes. Land? No. How prescient, uh, considering about <laughs> three years ago. <laughs> I think it might have even been longer than that. Ah, uh, maybe. Salah, what does it mean with this Junior, Dr. Jones? That's his name, Henry Jones Jr. I like Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. First, the breath of God. Only the penitent man shall pass. Second, the word of God. Only in the footsteps of God will he proceed. Third, the path of God. Only in the leap from the lion's head will he prove his worth. Henry Jones, or Dr. Henry Jones, my boy, were pilgrims in an holy land. Dr. Henry Jones, they were trying to kill us. Indiana, I know, Dad. This is a new experience for me. Happens to me all the time. And Dr. Henry Jones got lost in his own museum, huh? Indiana, it's disgraceful. You're old enough to be her, her grandfather. Dr. Jones, well, I'm as human as the next man. Dad, I was the next man. Oh, ships that pass in the night. I have anything else. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm out too. So let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. What do you have down? I have a little bit of a... Um, for me, it was a difficult score, both uh, Legacy and Impact, simply because of where the film was in my point in life and where I was at that time. I think it had some significance and played well and helped uh, cement Sir Sean's uh, rise back to a level of some notoriety. I thought it was played well. So I went with a 3.5 for the industry and a 3.5 for the public for seven for total. I personally believe it is the second best Indiana Jones movie, and I feel that most people that I know of at least, would likely feel the same. But it just doesn't have the same legacy as either of the two before it because its impact was smaller in scale given that it was the third of these. And most people seem to just file it away under pop entertainment while it did draw crowds. It's just the third edition of Indiana Jones. The remarkability of this movie just isn't there. I think it's tacked on when they do a marathon. This is the third movie. It's never shown by itself. It's always a part of the franchise at large. You could probably say that with a Temple of Doom, but I gave that extra points last week just due to the impact of its PG-13 creation, essentially. I think it gets a little bit extra bump because, one, I think that most people consider this above Temple of Doom, and then given that the original trilogy is kind of given its own place, with how poorly most people received Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I think that in its legacy does factor into how much people appreciate at this point how good the original movies were. 
Again, nothing lives up to Raiders. It's its own thing. And I think by itself, Raiders is just simply a better movie and a greater movie. So I only went with a one for the impact on industry. This seems like a forgotten film mostly. And I gave it a three for the audience because, again, on its own, people are not just going to go watch this. I don't think I ever just watched this to watch The Last Crusade. I usually watch them. I watch Raiders, then I watch Temple of Doom, and then I watch Last Crusade, or I watch Raiders, then I watch Last Crusade, or something else in context. It's very rare that I'm going to go and watch this movie on its own, whereas Raiders I've probably seen a bunch of times just by itself. So I ended up in a four. Between the two of us, that ends up at a 5.5 average. I just had a, uh, I don't know, middle-aged moment. I could just uh, envision having one of the few outdoor theaters that are still open and a group of uh, 50, 60-year-olds going out with uh, with most of us at this point in time, uh, liquor and wine as opposed to beer, and sitting around our cars laying on top of them watching the three films. Okay. I think it would be kind of a, a blast. Sure, but I think you could do that with a lot of movies. Oh, I just thought about this; these three movies in particular for a night. Impact significance. Again, I don't feel that this being the third movie, that it was exactly creative. I think where it gets its bona fides, or bona fides, if you will, is in that it kind of went back to the well in a little bit of uh, a way. I think you mentioned it with the humor. I mentioned it at the top a little bit with going after the grail being a religious artifact and one that people connect with, or it's more well known than the Shankara stones. I do feel like a lot of the research I did said this just kind of felt like the industry was getting tired of these, that they were just popcorn movies. They fell into a certain niche of the culture in the way that we talk about a lot of like superhero films, oh, Marvel's got another movie, oh, that'll be fun, but it wasn't necessarily groundbreaking. Uh, it had generally positive reviews, a good to great box office at the time. I mean, it was setting records. It was nominated for a few technical awards like Temple was, but just simply was not on the scale of Raiders and didn't take over the culture like Raiders did. I just think that the reception on this was more muted despite the box office. So I kind of separate those two things and people enjoyed it when it came out, but it came and it went like most other popcorn movies. And with the exception of when the DVDs came out and this was all a package deal where you could treat them as the three movies of the franchise, this kind of lost a bit of luster. And I don't think it was one that people just solely went out to get on their own. So I went with a 1.5 for the industry. I went with a 3.5 for the audience, a five overall. For impact significance, I went with a four for the audience and a two for the industry. I think this had quite a buzz. People were looking forward to it. And 1989 was kind of a down period economically. Things weren't going the, really the way we wanted them to. The 80s kind of ended uh, as far as, you know, that long Reagan 
thing. We had Iran Contra. People were looking for an escape at this point in time from some of the bad things. So I think people really gravitated towards this as being something just to escape and enjoy and have a few hours where you didn't have to think about too much. And so that's why I went with the numbers that I did. That seems to come up a lot for you. What? You've described a lot of movies as, well, with given in the context, uh, it was an escapism thing. They can't all be escapism movies, Dad. Well, they can. Because they can and they can't. Yes, they can. Because you haven't lived through some of these periods. and uh, What the fuck are you talking about? Haven't lived through some of these periods? We're literally living in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, I understand right at this moment. But when you're going back to a film in the, in 1989, the year before you were born, I lived through and graduated in the middle of the goddamn recession. Uh, okay, fine. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nobody was in 2008 saying The Dark Knight was a great movie because you could escape Wall Street. <laughs> okay. All right. Whatever. I'm just... Uh, whatever, yeah, let's move okay, on. Okay, fine. So just challenge me on every little aspect. That's Thank you, Tom. the point of the debate show! Oh, yes, fine. You don't have to be so up your ass about it. Good with my points? No, the point <laughs> is on your head. What? Yes. You, you're Are you calling head. me a pointy head? Yes. <laughs> you're okay. from... You're from France. You're a conehead. <laughs> uh, a movie we will not be doing on this podcast. <laughs> Why? It's uh, so terrible. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're probably uh, not even doing like Wayne's World, which in context of SNL movies is probably by far the best one. Yeah, I know. The SNL movies, well... Blues Brothers might be the only other exception. And that's not even a real uh, SNL film. Well, whatever. But anyway, let's move to novelty before we, we completely lose the point. Do you want to go first? On your head. Anyway, go ahead. I asked you a question and you were too focused on getting your point in about my pointy head. Sure. What was your question? Do you want to go first? Sure. Novelty? It's the third in a series. I don't know how much novel it can be. There's nothing really unique about it. It's it, it's a, a relationship movie about a father and a son. It's Indiana Jones. It's not horrible. It's not unique. It's not anything. So I just went middle of the road and went five. It feels in many ways a return to their roots, as I said a minute ago kind of movie with the searching for a Christian religious artifact that had a tie to predominantly Western culture and the Nazis are the bad guys again. Yes. I, it didn't recreate the wheel. It just returned to a great design and made a good movie. I am giving it a four because I gave it a couple of extra points because while it's not the least original or novel film, given that it is a rather formulaic structure, it is somewhat more unique in the Indiana Jones franchise because it does dig into the father and son 
aspect and I think maybe maybe not on a psychological well not on a philosophical but more of a psychological level it digs into their relationship in ways that there's no other relationship that matters that much within the rest of the Indiana Jones films it's just the action it's just the adventure maybe you could make a case for short round and Indian Temple of Doom but it's not like any other relationship matters to Indian raiders. It's kind of secondary. He treats Marion as a bystander. The only other thing I could say about it is for a lot of the other Grail stories that we get or hunts for the Grail, they seem kind of similar with the lone exception being Monty Python. And this one at least was different. There's no attacking rabbit. No. But this does have the biggest themes tackled of the franchise, so I, I gave it a 4. So that is a 4.5 average between us. Classicness, you always go first. Well, I always start with a 5, and I go up or down, and there's nothing, because it's a period piece. Whenever they do a period piece, it's hard to be critical of its classicness. I didn't find anything really overwhelmingly difficult or problematic about it. So actually I went with an eight because I just didn't find anything that was really a, a problem. I can understand that. I'm giving it at least a point up due to getting the tone and temperament of a relationship with an absent parent kind of right. Yeah, or at least that's the sense that I get. And I would credit a lot of that to our child of divorce director uh, as far as knowing the exact tone or notes to hit on that. Either way, I, I do think that we have to ding this just slightly because we have John Reese davies back again playing an Egyptian as a Welshman himself. Uh, so I gave it a half point just from that. And really, that's the only instance because we brought back a beloved character from Raiders to kind of give you a little bit of the tie-in and the nostalgia. The scene with Hitler seems a little on the nose, but I'm just going to let that one go. The biggest problem I have with this one is the love relationship with Elsa and Henry and Indiana is really kind of awkward and kind of gross for a mainstream movie that you kind of went there with that and kind of made jokes about it uh, in what's kind of a kid's movie. I, I I ended up taking off the point that I gave at the beginning for a 6.5 overall. So next week as we do uh, Sunset Boulevard and we discuss Gloria Swanson, who was Joseph P. Kennedy Sr.'s mistress, and we start talking about the fact that uh, Judith Resner, who was also one of his mistresses, also was the mistress of JFK. This is not uncommon, and I almost thought that the relationship was directly tied to the revelation that had come out about the time of this movie of that uh, situation where JFK and his father shared a mistress. Uh, that's one instance. Let me just ask this question and see what your, your thoughts are. What would you say if I said you and your father had slept with the same woman? If that's at all uncomfortable, you understand my point. Okay, well, I guess the question is, is are you using the term sleep with as a euphemism? Well, the obvious, yes. 
Well, okay, I can Not understand literally, that. Not literally, but obviously to mean Because have literally, sex. yes, I have. Or I, you know. <sighs> Rewatchability. I went with an 8.5 simply because I liked the film. And I always thought it was well done. And it's entertaining and fun. And there's nothing in it that's really, you know, over the top. And you don't have to really be in the right frame of mood. You can just put this on and just go, yeah, okay. I gave Raiders a 10 because it's probably a movie that I've rewatched more than any uh, other action-adventure film. It just is very easily rewatchable for me. I think I went with a seven and a half for Temple of Doom. So I'm going to give this one an eight, a slight half step up. I was actually surprised the Temple of Doom worked as well as it did for me last week. But I don't think that this one is, it's got some slow moments. Uh, it, it dragged in a couple of spots due to the slower pacing for me. And while it's a little bit more fun, keeping my attention, it, didn't hold some of the same intrigue as Raiders or Temple of Doom. So I think it's a more rewatchable film, but I don't think that the difference is that much. So I went with an eight. So that's an 8.25 between us. If I forgot to mention it, it was a 7.25 for classicness between us on the last category. So then audience score for this one, we had a 94% from Google users, a 94% from Rotten Tomato users, no, I do not have problems with the math on this one. That's a 9.4 for our overall scoring average. So we have a 5.5 for Legacy, a 5.5 for Impact Significance, a 4.5 for Novelty, 7.25 for Classicness, an 8.25 for Rewatchability, and a 9.4 for Audience Score. All added up, that is 40.4 overall points, placing it just slightly ahead by 0.4 of last week's movie, The Temple of Doom, and making it number 65 on our current list in between Full Metal Jacket and Inglorious Bastards. All right. So we will have covered our first trilogy. Yes. I think there are a few more to come, particularly with what we have for plans next year. Uh, remaining questions, then. What do you got? I really don't have any. I thought about a few, and then I'm like, eh, why manufacture stuff? Explain to me how the Grail can't pass the Great Seal using medieval technology. Because it's more mystical than... Okay, but the booby traps were all set up by men. Okay. How do we get 50 fake Grails that can take your life? Is it just the water that ages you suddenly? And if it's the case that only the water in the basin is the thing that grants you life from the correct grail? Why not just take the basin of water? It's not the water. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that all these fake grails could be there as resurrected by men unless somehow God played a part in creating all of this. Think about it. There were a lot of just men who were creating or doing a lot of extremely significant or paranormal activities, whether it be Paul or Peter or any of the other disciples healing the sick and doing all this, the power or through the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to say, you have to take into account 
that this artifact was greater than the artifact itself. I think they were devising more of stuff to fit scenes as opposed to stuff that made sense. That's my explanation. Okay. And then this is the one I asked you while we were watching the film over the weekend because I was I was up there. But if the Nazis can't get past the trials, why show up to claim the grail? Wouldn't you just let them all die on their own? <laughs> I know. It's like seems very obvious to me why put yourself in harm's way when all of those people will just die inevitably then you can go after the grail if you wish yes hey. all right so last thoughts for the week i really don't have any extra thoughts i i will say that for the first time in 18 months i actually went back to an actual movie theater to see a film and I saw Respect with Jennifer Hudson, which was the Aretha Franklin biopic. I enjoyed it. It was great to be back. There were about uh, eight other people in the theater other than the or my family that went with me. And uh, again, I returned to the old aspect, which is the movies are a collective group of people meeting together to have an individual experience. And it felt good. Oh, good for you. I've been to two so far this summer. I went to Black Widow because it's a Marvel movie and I'm, I'm nerdy. But I also went to Free Guy uh, two weekends ago, I guess, which I really loved and enjoyed. And I'll probably be going back around Labor Day to see the new Marvel movie for that one, too. Likewise, I'll probably see the Hugh Jackman film that just came out. Although it's on HBO Max, I, I probably won't go out to the theater for that. I'll, I'll watch it on there. But I also enjoy Hugh Jackman. And people that can kind of poke fun at themselves and enjoy what they're doing, I just enjoy their personalities. So I'm much more willing to give them a chance than uh, some of the people that just take themselves way too seriously. And by the way, if you have not seen Hugh Jackman's tweet, he had a uh, cancer scare, skin cancer scare, and he has been a big advocate for people wearing sunscreen and having themselves checked out for moles or other blemishes uh, and dealing with it. So if well, anybody he is Australian. Yes. Anybody who's listening and, uh, you know, I would encourage you to do the same. Always good to stand up to cancer. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we are covering one of the greatest film noirs of all time that you should recognize from that exact line, Sunset Boulevard, starring Gloria Swanson and William Holden. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmodepodcast or on Twitter at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 